as we sing our praises to God together.
holy God, we are yours. And we know that you are here with us. We pray that you would call us forward, that you would give us courage to step out in faith, knowing that at every moment, in the good times and in the hard times, that you are with us. Inspire us to trust you and to live lives that show others that we trust you. Amen. As we continue in worship, any children ages 2 to 5 who would like to go to children's church can be dismissed right now. When peace like a
Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 70. Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May those who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. Great to see all of you here this morning, and especially welcome uh, those of you who may be guests today and students who are back on campus. We are excited to see all of you, and I pray it's a wonderful year for you tonight. We invite uh, invite everyone, but uh, especially want to make sure students know we want you to be a part of the potluck picnic we're having tonight. I know it's raining now, but the weather report says no rain this afternoon, so that's what we're going with. Uh, It's not going to rain. So we want you to, uh, if the weatherman says it, that's what's going to happen, right? So we're going, to, uh, we're going to get together. We'd love to have you be a part of that. And um, all the rest of us who, who aren't students or are new to the church or the community, we'll bring lots of food, so there's plenty for you. So join us at 5 o'clock tonight, uh, sort of on the back lawn, and we'll have some games to play and just uh, a good, just fun time of being together and hopefully even making some connections in the process of that. Uh, we again gather for worship uh, next Sunday and throughout the, the rest of the semester at 8.20, 9.40, and 11. And you see information in the bulletin about that. And uh, also, two weeks from today is Christian Life Emphasis Week. Um, if you're new to uh, the, the church or the, the uh, area or the college, uh, we, this is a special time in the life of the church, at the college and the church that we sponsor. And our speaker this year is A.J. Swoboda. A.J. is a uh, professor in seminary. He also pastors a church, and he's written a number of books. They are very thought-provoking, insightful, uh, very uh, contemporary. And uh, we've asked the campus store at uh, the college to get a few copies of those books and I encourage you, if you have a minute, over the next few weeks to maybe pick up one and uh, read it. It might help you as we prepare for his coming and the word that he's going to share with us. And also, uh, on September 4th, we are uh, collecting our the jars we've been uh, putting a dollar a week into for refugees, and you may this may be something new to you. Don't worry about it. Uh, but for those of you who've been doing this, we're going to collect those on September fourth, and then we are going to give you back a new booklet uh, for the next three months, and uh, take our jars home and fill them up again in a, as a means of connecting our hearts as well as our wallets with uh, with refugees and the needs that they have throughout the world. So let's, uh, before we move on, let's uh, take a minute and uh, stand and offer a word of greeting to others. Maybe introduce yourself to someone you don't know.
You could have talked longer, that's okay. Is this internal clock that goes off and everyone says, okay, I think we're done. Memory's a funny thing. When I was young, uh, I could never remember to take out the trash or clean my room. But I could tell you the starting lineup from the 1968 World Series. 10, 15, 20 years. I can tell you today uh, if you wanted to hear it. I'm sure you do. Uh, you know, it's just funny the things that we remember and the things that we forget. And, and memory can be the greatest gift in the world and it can also be, feel like the greatest curse in the world. There, there are some times where memories bring to us a feeling of warmth and, and love and joy and everything good. And then there are memories that make us feel hopeless. Maybe we feel despair, fear, anxiety. When it, when it comes to memory, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse. And, and we, we all have things that we forget that we wish we could remember and things that we remember that we wish we could forget. Memory is part of who we are, both the things that we remember and the things that we don't. It, it shapes us. And, and the things that we remember are not only about just recalling them to mind, but they're bringing the past into the present and they're helping us make the present move into the future. The Bible has a lot to say about memory and remembering. Some scholars would tell us that if you wanted to summarize the Old Testament in one word, you could perhaps use the word remember. Because so often, God says to his people, remember, remember, remember. Remember who you are. Remember where you've been. Remember what you've done. Remember what you shouldn't have done. Remember me. Remember who I am. On and on and on it goes. All throughout the scriptures. Remember, remember, remember. And Psalm 70 that we just read is also about remembering. I don't know about you, but for a long time when I picked up a new book, I would thumb past all those first pages and move right to the place where it said chapter 1. I have since learned how important those introductory pages are. The introduction, the foreword, the preface. Because when you read those pages, they give you the context of what you're about to read. They, they help you understand what the rest of the book is about. And I have found that when I, when I read those introductory pages, I am much more apt to grasp what the author is trying to say in the rest of the book. And the Psalms sometimes give us those introductory uh, phrases. There are some Psalms that just simply start out Psalm 1 and you go. But there are other Psalms that have some, some introduction to them. And some of them are sort of, uh, you know, not all that significant to us. They might just say a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Asaph, a Psalm. But every so often we come across a Psalm that gives us a context for what we're about to read. And Psalm 70 is one of those. And so at the beginning of Psalm 70, it says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, asking God to remember him. 
Now, what's unusual about this, about what the, the psalm, how this psalm begins, is that, yes, it talks about remembering, but it turns the tables. We are used to Scripture saying, remember God. Remember God. Remember what God has done. Remember who God is. Remember all the things about God. And now David says, God, remember me. Remember us. Now, it's not as though this never happens in Scripture. It is the cry of the Israelites in Egypt. In slavery, they cry out, God, remember us. And the book of Exodus tells us that God remembered them. Now, that doesn't mean that God all of a sudden went, oh, my goodness, I totally forgot about Israel being in Egypt. What was I thinking? I got so busy doing this stuff, I totally missed them down there. Oh, they're going to kill me. Now, that's what we do, right? Now, to remember is not just to recall to mind. In the biblical sense of remembering, it means to become active. It means to do something. And so the Israelites are crying out to God to remember them as a means of saying, God, help us, rescue us, come deliver us. And that's exactly what David is saying. God, help me, deliver me, rescue me, remember me. I suspect that we have all had moments in our lives when we have prayed that prayer. We find ourselves backed up against the wall. And as David writes in the psalm, our enemies, those who oppose us, those who are against us, whoever is instigating the situation, is, is laughing, smiling, that sort of uh, maniacal smile that you, you hear, you know, uh, evil people in the movies do. And we feel like we are never getting away from where we are. We feel that we, have, we are so low, we, things are, are so bad, that all we can do is cry out, God, help me, save me, rescue me, remember me. We don't know the context of this psalm in terms of what exactly is happening in David's life. Some people think that David is, this is a prayer about some sin he's committed. He is... Um, because and the reason for that is because Psalm 70 is, is almost verbatim the last five verses of Psalm 40. And you read through Psalm 40 and you get to the end of it and here is the exact, just about the exact same words as Psalm 70. And so since Psalm 40 is about David lamenting his sin and asking God to help him, there is a sense that this is the same thing. But when I read Psalm 70 by itself, Outside of the context of Psalm 40, it doesn't strike me so much as David crying out because of his sin, as much as it does David crying out because he is being attacked. He talks about, in verses 2 and 3, about his enemies who are trying to kill him, and who oppose him, who backed him against the wall, and are saying, we've got him now. It makes me think of maybe two instances in David's life that we are aware of. One of them is... Uh, He's been anointed king, but he's not yet taken the throne. Saul is still the king, and Saul is jealous of David. And Saul raises up his army to kill David. And he chases David and his little band of, of renegades all over Palestine. And there are times where David feels as though he's not going to get out of the grip that Saul has on him. And maybe it's in one of those moments that he prays this prayer. I wonder, though, if it's not... One of those moments that, the moment when Absalom, David's very son, instigates a coup and overthrows David as the king. 
And David, with his officials, has to flee Jerusalem. And Absalom establishes his throne in Jerusalem. It's short-lived, but it is, it is embarrassing to David. It's, it's dangerous to David. His officials come to him and say, David, you're in big trouble here. And it makes me wonder if it's not in that moment that David prays this prayer, God, help me, rescue me. Because you see, this isn't just a prayer about David alone. David is the chosen one of God from whom the Messiah will eventually come. David is a part of the bigger meta plan of God for the world. And David's kingdom is a part of that plan. And it's about the people of Israel. And when David has been forced off the throne, not only is he suffering, but the people of Israel are suffering. And David says, Lord, come rescue me. In a sense, the next statement, so that I can reestablish my kingdom and rule my people that you've given me. There are times where we, where our feelings of despair are not just about our lives, but there are a lot of, I think about this with the people around the world who are followers of Jesus and are persecuted. We made a practice over the last couple of years of every week praying for the persecuted church. Because we don't want to forget that we have brothers and sisters all over the world who every day face a threat of their very lives and their livelihoods simply because they're followers of Jesus. And I don't want to forget them. And sometimes when I read story after story after story of what God or what the, the enemies of God are doing to his people, I want to throw up my hands and say, God, do you see this? Are, are you paying attention here? Is it, is it all just going to crumble? What's happening? It's in those moments that I remember David's prayer. And I pray, one of my first prayers in that moment is, God, remove the pressure. Get rid of the enemies. Set them free. Take, take, take the pressure and the stress and, the, and the, the push of your enemies off of your people. That's the most natural prayer in the world. That's what we do with ourselves, right? When we're back against the wall, what's our prayer? Lord, get those people away from me. Get, take care of the situation. Change them. Change the people. Change the circumstances. Get rid of that. It's the most natural prayer in the world, and it's David's prayer. In verses 2 and 3, he goes on. Not only to talk about the people who kill him, but he goes on to talk about what he wants God to do to them. And his prayer is a little bit different than some of the prayers he prays. Some of the prayers David prays make us a little bit embarrassed. They make us nervous. Because their prayers of, you know, dashing people against rocks and mountains falling on villages and, you know, the kinds of things that you go, I don't know exactly how to explain that. Uh, but it really makes me feel uncomfortable that that's what God is going to do. Even though we want a God who does justice, right? We want a God who cares about justice. But this is a different kind of prayer. David doesn't pray for his enemies to be destroyed. He prays for his enemies to be humiliated. He says, I want them to be horrified at what they're doing. I think what David is praying is, God, put them in such a position that they see the extent of what they're doing and they are ashamed and humiliated and horrified so that they'll stop doing what they're doing. And not just stop doing what they're doing, but actually have a different feeling, a different heart, a different perspective toward God. It does not make God happy 
to, to punish people. Sometimes the God that is described by many people in the church and outside the church is a vindictive God. But that's not the heart of God. God's made it clear from the very beginning, his design upon human beings is to redeem them, to save them, to set them free. And it doesn't matter if they're people who are open to God or closed to God. He wants everyone to come to faith in him. And I get a sense that this prayer of David is God, humiliate them, horrify them, so that they stop what they're doing and say, wait a minute, I don't want to be opposed to God. I I want to know God. I mean, it's really the, what Jesus prays on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. A.J. Swoboda, a clue speaker, one of his books says, Jesus does have revenge on the people who crucify him. Jesus has revenge on the people who crucify him. Now, for us, revenge is retaliation. For Jesus, revenge is resurrection. And what Jesus says is, I'm not going to retaliate against you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to offer you life. And I'm going to be raised. He's raised from the dead so that the people who put him on the cross, the people who are standing there in horror about what is happening to Jesus on the cross, and the people who walk by without giving a care to what's going on with Jesus on the cross, have an opportunity to see the love of God and to respond to it. Get the sense in Revelation 11, as as John is talking about the saints in heaven who have been martyred. There is a sense, when you read that chapter, that, that God is saying the vindication of the saints is not retaliation against their enemies. But rather, the nations turning to God. Because that's God's desire. That's his plan. Not everyone does it. Not everyone wants what God offers. But it's not because God doesn't offer it. And it's his heart. But David is not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about all of Israel. And so when you come to verse 4, he talks about, uh, he prays for all the people who do seek God. All the people who are on God's side. Not just his enemies, but his friends. And I think part of the reason David prays this prayer, these two sentences, is because he's concerned that not only is he getting discouraged, but they're getting discouraged. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to follow God. And what's the result? God doesn't seem to be listening. And so he says to them, God gives joy to those who seek him. And all the people who love God's salvation cry, God is great. There's something about loving God's salvation that puts us in the right frame of mind to see God and experience God. When we talk about loving God's salvation, it's not just we're just happy because God has done something in our lives. It's, It's a matter of loving the way God brings about deliverance. And maybe David is saying to the people, look, I know God feels silent right now. I know God seems to not be doing what you want him to do. But trust him. Believe. God knows what he's doing. And his way of salvation is always right. Embrace it. And for we who are on the other side of the cross, for us, our prayer of thanksgiving is, God, we thank you that the way of the cross is the way of life. And the way of life is the way of the cross. 
Now, when I pray that for what Jesus has done for me, I get excited. Thank you so much. I'm a little less excited about praying that prayer when I remember that Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross and follow me. But people who see God for who he is are willing and desire to embrace whatever way in which God brings about deliverance and rescue, whether it's the way we are hoping or not. And so when David says, God uh, gives with joy all those who seek him, he doesn't say God gives joy to those who find him. And there is a difference. There are all kinds of people through the ages in Scripture and through Christian history who have sought God with all their hearts and didn't find, they didn't experience what they were hoping to experience on this earth. Hebrews 11 is filled with, with names of people who did just that. But that's because the experience is in the seeking, not necessarily in the finding. And we're all about end result. We're all about success. We're all about getting to where we want to be. That's how we judge whether what we did was right or wrong. But God is all about the journey. And if on our journey we're seeking God, we'll get to the end he wants us to get to. And when we're seeking him, we begin to realize that even though he's silent, he's present. Because in the seeking, our eyes are opened. A few years ago, a number of years ago, we bought a, uh, an Oldsmobile Forenza car. I'd never heard of a Forenza before. I'd never heard of that car. I'd never seen one. And so we bought this Forenza. And you know, like the day we pulled off the lot, I saw Forenzas everywhere. You know, I mean, they're all over the place. You had that experience with something? And it's not because all of a sudden everyone went, well, you know, if Wes and Cindy are going to buy one of those Forenzas, we better go buy one too. So then they flooded the market with it. No, it's... It's because now I was aware that this was a particular kind of vehicle. And because of that, I saw them. They were always there. I just didn't pay attention to them. And there's something about seeking God with all of our heart. Coming to God, looking for God, searching for God, desiring God. That we begin to see him when before we missed him. And in seeing him, we find the joy of his presence that without that seeking, we're wondering where in the world he is. But David's still struggling. He's wrestling. And you come to that last verse, and David says, Lord, when I boil it down, I am poor and needy. There's something about that prayer that I think is more powerful than we probably realize. To say, I need you, God, is not a prayer of despair as if we're saying, I need you, God. I wish I didn't, but I do. It is a prayer of joy. God, I need you. Thank you that I need you. We don't tend to see it that way. Needing God is built into how God created every human being. I've been thinking a lot about creation and uh, the Garden of Eden and all the events that took place during that, in that time and what Genesis 1 to 3 tells us. And, and I'm, as I'm thinking about that, I, I'm realizing that despite how I tended to see Adam and Eve's life before they sinned, 
I don't think they were perfect. If they were perfect, then they wouldn't need God. They're good. And if they were perfect, then it seems almost impossible that they would come to the place of sinning against God. And I see a glimpse of their imperfection in how they talk about God's command related to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God says to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden except the fruit from the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve isn't created yet when God gives Adam that command. And so, but later in chapter 3, when Eve is having a conversation with the serpent, she says to him, God said, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but we're not allowed to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God didn't say that. God said you can't eat of it. He didn't say anything about touching it. Somewhere between Adam and Eve, some communication got mixed up. I suspect it was, it was unintentional, but it got mixed up. And, and it, it reveals to me that everything wasn't perfect with them. There were still imperfections in their ability to communicate, and maybe and probably in other ways as well. They hadn't sinned yet, but they weren't perfect. And then you realize, as someone pointed out to me this week, that... They move from God saying, don't eat from the tree. And it's almost as if they said to themselves, I'm not sure we can do that. I think it's going to be too tempting. So let's say God said, don't touch the tree. So we're going to build the first legalistic rule around one of God's commands. And we're going to build this fence around the tree. And that way, we, if we don't cross the fence that God didn't say, we won't cross over and sin about what God did say. And we've been doing that ever since. They recognized they had a need. God built it into creation. And the difference between before they sinned and after is that before they sinned, they knew they needed God and they celebrated that and they trusted him. And after they sinned, they didn't want to admit their need for God and they ran from God and distrusted God. The difference wasn't their need for God. The difference was how they responded to it. Having a need for God is not a character flaw. It doesn't mean we're spiritually immature. Sometimes when we talk about people being holy or holiness or that whole whole doctrine, I often, and maybe I just misinterpreted it, but I often, what I heard people saying was that you're holy when you can re- you're so spiritual that actually you don't really need God anymore. You can look at God and say, look, I've come so far. I'm good. You go help other people. I- I'm doing fine. I'm okay. When the truth is, the most holy people I know, the most deeply spiritual people I know, are people who live with a constant sense of how much they need God. And it's in the needing of God that we, that we draw closer to God And in the needing of God, we experience the fullness of God because we are wanting God, seeking God more and more all the time. And we recognize that without needing God, we're cutting ourselves off from the source of life and flourishing and everything that God created us to experience. And needing God is a gift, not a curse. Sometimes it's in an attitude of despair. But the very fact that we need God... And we declare that 
is a recognition of who God is and who we are. And I think there's an undercurrent in this psalm of David saying, God, I'm desperate, I'm struggling, I need you to come right now, immediately, today. I don't know why you're not. I don't think this is the first time David's prayed this prayer. Uh, the water's getting high. I need you to rescue me now. But that's the very point. I need you. And I think sometimes God is silent in order to get us to the place where we truly declare how much we need God. Because it's only in, in recognizing our need for God and embracing that need for God that we get connected to God, who is the source of everything that deep inside we desire and all that he created us to be and experience. And underlying this psalm is David saying, God, I trust, I believe you are who you say you are and you do what you promise to do. You're our helper, our savior, and we trust you. Every time I, I read through this psalm, my mind keeps flashing forward hundreds of years to an incident about, in Jesus' life that's recorded in the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. Throughout this, this chapter, Mark has been telling us about Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. And he's talking, he's doing a variety of parables about how the kingdom grows and expands and, and how the kingdom operates. And, and Jesus has been teaching all day. And when you get to the end of the day and the crowds go away, Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples and to cross the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is so tired, he crawls up in the corner of the boat, and I suspect he rolled up something and put his head on it for a pillow, and he fell fast asleep. And in the middle of the lake, a storm comes up and threatens to capsize the boat and kill all of them. And the disciples are freaking out. And finally, they go over and they wake up Jesus and they say to him, Jesus, don't you care what's going on here? Do something. What they saying? Remember us. Pay attention. Do something. Help us. Rescue us. And Jesus gets up and from his sleep, and I can see him kind of rubbing his eyes and looking around. The storm is raging and the boat is all over the place. And he says to the wind and the waves, be still. And they are. And then he says to the disciples, why are you afraid? Don't you have faith? Don't you believe? I think it is one of those instances in which we see the evil one trying to thwart God's great plan of redemption. Just as he tried to kill Jesus as an infant with Herod's edict, and as he tries to, to get Jesus off of the path that God has set for him, here in the middle of the lake, he's trying to drown them all and end it. And Jesus knows it's not going to happen because of who God is and because of what God has promised. But when you're in the boat and the waves are rocking you all over and you're not Jesus, it's frightening. And Jesus doesn't calm the storm because he's afraid of the storm that it's going to take them under. I think the only reason he calms the storm is because the disciples are freaking out. And he's trying to calm them down. And so he can teach them and help them to understand that the kingdom, the enemies of the kingdom are no match 
for God. This is a psalm about God remembering us. But really, it's a psalm about us remembering God. Because every time we cry out to God, I need you, remember me, help me, we're doing so in the context of remembering who God is and what God has promised. That God is trustworthy and good and gracious and merciful. And the question in front of every one of us in those circumstances of life, in every circumstance of life, is simply this. Will we trust him? Will we trust him? Holy Father, we want to thank you that you are good and merciful and trustworthy. And we declare that we need you. Give us grace to remember who you are and what you've promised and to trust you. Father, this morning we pray not only for ourselves, we pray for the needs and the concerns of others around us. We think of the people in our midst who are struggling and wrestling with illness and pain. And we pray today for Jill Tyson and Blanche Weaver, for Bruce Brenneman and Tammy Dunmire, and for Luke Heisinger, Wade Marsh, Sheldon Emerson, Doug Bogdan. We pray for Barb Rangel and Bob Joubert, Laurel Bucher and Bill Getty. For Warren and Ella Woolsey and Phil Muker and Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett. And for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould and Emily Cricklar. And for others who are on our hearts and our minds today. We pray for all who are grieving this morning. I think especially of Mark and Terry Sweet and their family at the death of Mark's mother this week. Pour out your grace upon them. We pray for Phyllis Osgood and her family at the death of her sister this week. May they too know your comforting presence. Father, we pray for the ministry of not only our church, but the churches around us. And today we pray for the United Church of Nunday and Pastor Merritt. May your blessing be upon this congregation as they are, their hearts are, are bound together in your love and as they share your love and grace with their community and beyond. And we pray for our world. Think of our nation. So many places of conflict, violence, and we pray for peace in the midst of chaos. We pray for all who are recovering from recent disasters and terrorist attacks all around the world and pray that you would bring peace in the midst of fear and anxiety. We pray for refugees who are fleeing Syria and other places of the world and who are now finding borders more and more closed to them. We pray for protection and we pray for the ability to return to their homelands. 
Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world. And today we think especially of, of uh, those in uh, the Demsa area of Nigeria. Christians have been martyred. Threats have been made and continue. And we pray for your grace upon them. We pray that you would release them from the threats and that through their witness, those who threaten them might come to know you and to see you. Father, we thank you for the work of your people around the world. And today we pray for the Wesleyan hospitals in Haiti and Sierra Leone and Zambia. Pour out your blessing upon them and the thousands of people that they treat every year. We pray for workers to come and to to minister to the sick and the poor and the needy. Through this ministry, not only will bodies be healed, but minds and spirits and souls, every part of their being. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
stand and sing to us?
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.